turn in the Holy Scriptures to Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll read that chapter. Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment, with promise that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in singleness of your heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but as the servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall be received shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And ye masters do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. But that ye also may know my affairs and how I do, Tychicus, a beloved brethren, brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things." whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that ye might know our affairs, and that he might comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. The word of God that we consider tonight is verses 10 through 13. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. 
Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. The opening word of the Apostle makes clear that this word of the Apostle is the last exhortation that he has for the church at Ephesus and therefore is essentially the same admonition, even final admonition that he gives to us, the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. This exhortation logically follows from what the church is. This exhortation concerns battling, a fight, wrestling, standing, spiritual forces against us, using spiritual armor in that battle, and it all has to do with what the church is. And as we have seen in the book, the church is the body and bride of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. Those blessings are that He has chosen us to be adopted sons and daughters, chosen us to a great inheritance. He has redeemed and delivered us from the bondage of sin and death. And therefore, as such, because of who we are and what we are in Jesus Christ, there are enemies. There are enemies of certain spiritual powers and of darkness that oppose us and require, therefore, the admonition of the passage to stand. The idea is that as a church, stand. As the body of Christ, stand. As members of Jesus Christ, stand. There is a reason why one of the outstanding descriptions of the church in the world is the church militant. That's the relationship. As a church, as the church described in this book, we are a church militant. And therefore, we have a calling to stand. This final exhortation is also related to the purpose of God in revealing the great mystery of Christ. The great mystery of Christ in the church, revealing exactly who and what we are. This belongs to the proclamation of the gospel. Not only of what the church is, but the end to which it's called. The place from which it's called even has to do with the way or the manner in which God gathers and delivers the church. God gathers and delivers His church in the way of battle, in the way of a fight, in the way of a spiritual struggle. There is no other way. And therefore, it's related also 
to the two main callings of the church that introduced and were part of this practical section. The first, you may recall, was now being the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, His body and His bride, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. You are a church, therefore there is a calling. And the final exhortation with regard to that calling, our vocation as a church, is stand. Stand in that battle. And then there was the other great calling in chapter 5. Be ye therefore followers of God and walk in love as Christ loved us. If we are to be followers of God, if we are to walk in love as Christ loved us, then there will be this battle. These are not contrary to one another, walking in love and fighting a battle, following Christ and standing, but they are complementary. One cannot accomplish the one without the other. So consider with me this evening our calling to stand strong against the devil. Standing strong against the devil, we notice in the first place the battle that's fought and being fought. In the second place, the standing that's required and exhorted. And thirdly, the strength that is given in this battle. First, we consider the battle. And we're going to spend considerable time on this and other elements of the text we will defer because we do plan in the future to consider the armor of God that we are called to put on in the text. To spend more time on that so that this evening we can spend more time on the calling itself generally concerning the battle and standing Now, the battle that's talked about in the text, where it talks about wrestling and standing, that this is done against certain principalities and powers, certain rulers, spiritual wickedness, is the great history-long battle of the church down through the ages. The great battle between two kingdoms the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven which is the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the kingdom of this world that is led by the devil. It's describing the battle of the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of heaven as it's led by our Lord Jesus Christ versus the kingdom of the world led by the devil. And this is a history-long battle. The Apostle is not calling the church simply to put on armor for a future battle, but to put it on in a battle that's already raging. This battle, in fact, has its origins, its principle, its beginning with the fall of Satan and the rebellion of Satan and hosts of heaven mighty and great hosts of heaven who rebel against God not long after they are created. It's a battle that first becomes known and is revealed in the garden in the great fall of Adam and Eve who did not stand, who fell. 
And that battle rages on. That battle has continued throughout the entire history of the world without pause, without ceasefire. There's never been a time in the history of the world where the church has been free from this battle, could sit down really and rest. Even in the history of the church of the Old Testament where the church was given the wonderful land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. And after they had been given that land through conquest, through great real battles, even physical battles, and entered into a form of rest, that battle continued. They had to deal with idols and idolatry, enemies that continually encroached on them, God teaching the church, therefore, that there never is a time when this battle ceases or stops. You can go through all the history of the Bible, all the history recorded of the church in Scripture, and you will see that battle raging at every single term, from the fall itself to the world leading up to the flood, Even the flood itself was a great victory in this battle. The captivity of Israel in Egypt. The captivity in Israel in Babylon. All of it pertains to this battle. This battle, of course, takes a critical turning. There is a critical juncture, a pivot point in the coming, of course, of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His death. And in His resurrection and His ascension and and being seated at God's right hand. Even having said that, however, the Scriptures reveal that there will be a marked increase in the intensity of this battle after the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it will increase in fury and in rage and intensity during the whole period of the New Testament culminating, reaching its zenith, its fullness, in the very coming of our Lord Jesus Christ itself. Where our Lord is even described as coming during a great battle. And He comes, He's described as coming with all His hosts, with all of His great army, bringing an end to that battle. And that battle is described. The fury and the rage of that battle as long as all as well as the results of the slain in that battle. This is a battle, beloved people of God, that involves tremendous resources. One may be appalled or even amazed at the tremendous resources that have been used in previous world battles, the tremendous amounts of iron and steel and ammunition that was used to build tanks and planes without number that were expended, that were used up in the battles of this world. Nothing compared to what's used in this battle. There are resources of the entire world that is being used The entire world in all of its power, in all of its principalities, in all of its institutions, all the considerable power that one finds in this world are enlisted and used in this battle. 
They are used by our Lord Jesus Christ, even, who is King and Lord over all, ascended into heaven. It is used by the enemy and the rulers of this world and this creation by earthly powers and rulers. But it includes even the greater resources of the spiritual realm. This is a battle between two kingdoms, one from heaven and one from earth. And even as this battle involves the use of earthly and worldly and even physical resources, it involves also the even greater resources of heaven, the spiritual realm. In fact, one must see that everything that God has created everything that exists in this great and grand world will be used in this battle. Read sometime even the description of the signs of our Lord's coming when even the sun and the moon and the stars will play a role in this battle. A reminder that they have played a role in this battle throughout time and history. The battle in which God even used the sun standing still to win great victories. This is a battle of the highest stakes. This is not a battle over oil fields and over rich resources. This is not a battle over living space. This is not a battle that's about one man's earthly glory. This is not a battle to show who's stronger and who's weaker. It's not a battle that belongs to what they say is the evolution of the species, the survival of the fittest, but a battle of much, much higher stakes. At stake in this battle is indeed the dominion of this world. No doubt it's a battle between two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven, but it concerns dominion of this world. Whoever wins this battle, whoever succeeds and is victorious in this battle, has dominion over the earth. And given also then, dominion over heaven. It concerns the stakes of one's own physical and spiritual blessedness in this life and world. One's blessedness, one's blessedness in this life, one's blessedness even in the next life is all at stake in this battle. Matters of eternal life as well as physical earthly life. Matters of eternal death, not just earthly physical death, are all at stake. Matters of spiritual liberty. Not simply earthly liberty or bondage under a certain ruler under physical chains. This is a war also and a battle that we speak about from a certain perspective. And that is a perspective of absolute certainty and hope that the outcome is already determined. The outcome has not only been determined, but because it's been determined, it's been revealed. It is certain. One must not look at this battle as the outcome being uncertain, 
One may not look at this battle and say, I don't know who's going to be victorious. I don't know who's going to win. But one says, I know the ending. I know how this turns out. And even then, the calling therefore isn't, well, just sit and watch as a spectator. Knowing the outcome, simply cheer. But knowing the outcome, stand. Stand fast. And that we must see too is part of the text. This battle is determined by God's own sovereign decree. That becomes evident even in the very beginning. When God promises the victory already in the garden, Genesis 3.15, I will send one, the seed of the woman, who will crush the head of your enemy, your opponent, the great serpent. Oh, there will be injury to the heel of him who crushes his head. But the victory is certain. The outcome is determined. Why? Well, as we're going to see, this victory and the outcome all depends upon the sovereign power of Almighty God as it's exercised through His Son, Jesus Christ. And in fact, it's the very fact that the outcome is determined. That God has even revealed this that explains the great intensity and fury of the battle as the end approaches. The Bible reveals that the enemy becomes raging, reaches a certain desperation even knowing the end is near. And like great enemies in other physical battles, pours all of his resources in a fury even that he knows is futile. So we must see that also. Now, having given a survey of this battle, although we must see that this battle is conducted in this world, concerns even physical resources, that it is essentially a spiritual battle. Oh yes, it involves physical people. It involves their physical lives. It involves this world. It involves physical resources and institutions. But it's essentially a spiritual battle. And that's evident from the passage itself. Indeed, that it's in emphasis. First of all, by the fact that the armor that the church is told to wear, and the weapons the church is told to employ are all spiritual. Truth and righteousness, the preparation of the gospel, faith, salvation, and the Word of God are all spiritual things. You cannot fight against tanks and bullets with truth and righteousness and the gospel and faith. That's armor, and that's weapons that are used for an entirely different kind of battle. Reminder that our warfare against the devil and our warfare as a church militant has nothing at all to do with tanks or missiles or bombs, nor how many forty-five caliber guns and 9 millimeters you have in your house. No, even though the devil himself may use physical devices 
for accomplishing His purposes may use physical rulers, physical punishment, physical jails, physical bonfires. His weapons may really be described and are described in the passage simply as fiery darts. That is, spiritual weapons. In fact, what you must see is in the description of what we are to wear and what we are to fight with that for every one of those things, Satan has an opposing weapon and an opposing sort of armor that we are fighting against. So, against the truth, he hurls a lie. Against righteousness, he fires wickedness. Against the preparation of the Gospel, He sends waves and waves of ignorance and foolishness. Against faith, He plants landmines of doubt. Against salvation, He uses death. Against the Word of God, He throws out the Word of man. The battle is conducted even by spiritual strategies. The primary power, the primary influence, and the primary method of warfare that the devil uses is also summarized in this passage as simply wiles. Wiles that ye may be able to withstand the wiles of the devil. Think about that. Oh yes, many physical resources and humans and people have been involved in this battle But if you want to summarize the fiery darts, if you want to summarize his real ammunition, it's simply wiles. That is, deceit. Lying and deceit. And understand he uses that because it's particularly effective. It's amazing how down through history men have used all kinds of different physical weapons. And they come and they go because they may be effective for a time, But then something else comes along that makes them ineffective. So they switch weapons. What the devil has always used from the beginning to the end is wiles. That is lying and deceit. We may include in wiles also things like intimidation. Intimidation and temptation. So that even when physical things are employed by the enemy, you must see he is using them in a way to tempt or to intimidate, or to deceive, or to lie. Behind all of those are those three things, or those four things, that all may be summarized as wiles. Trickery. Trickery. Emphasizing even further that this is a spiritual battle is that we're told specifically it's not a battle against flesh and blood. This is not a battle that has actually ever been fought between any particular nations or particular rulers or particular institutions as such. That was true even in the Old Testament when there was a physical nation made up of Israel fighting against, say, a physical nation known as the Moabites or the Ammonites. That wasn't really the battle. It wasn't really what was going on with horses and chariots and spears and swords and shields but it was going on in a spiritual way. The stakes were spiritual. This has never been a battle between the United States 
and any other nation. It's not a battle between democratic and capitalist institutions and more socialist and communist institutions. Oh, they may be employed, but the battle is spiritual. It's not against flesh and blood. Even when particular nations and rulers and institutions come under the dominion and power of darkness, it's always a war that occurs in spiritual places. It occurs in hearts. It occurs in minds. And that's all brought out in how we must see then is being mentioned when it talks about the fact that it's not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We must see that those are all spiritual things that are mentioned. We're not supposed to look at that list and say, well, that's this political party or this physical institution or refers to this earthly ruler. Not as such. We must think in spiritual terms. Principalities. To understand this word, understand that in the original, it's a word that we are familiar with in English, the word ark. So we speak of, for example, the ark enemy. What we mean by that is our first and main enemy. The enemy of all enemies. That's what principality are. They're the first and foremost principles of things. Literally those things that are the foundations, that are the first things upon which everything else is built, upon which everything else must build upon. Everything else follows them as determined by them. And it looks at these spiritual powers and realize that all of them ultimately refer to the devil himself. That principle, that ark, that first and foremost spiritual power. But you must see even beyond that, exactly because of who the devil is and the tremendous power that's given to him, you must realize that he uses all kinds of principal things. Laws, physics. If you doubt me on that, simply again read about the power that was in Satan's hand when he tempted Job and what he was able to effect in the hearts and minds of men to accomplish his purpose. Look at his power over basic powers in the creation to bring up storms and winds. That's principles. Basics. You may even think here of basic institutions like marriage, like government, like the home, like the family. And the idea there is not that we are fighting against them as such, but the devil will employ them, seek to invade them, seek to change them, make that a place of battle, make that part of what the battle is about. That explains our life today. What's going on in our land Why is there the attack upon the family, attack upon marriage, attack upon children, attack upon learning, and all these things? And at very basic and principal levels, where even what marriage is, what male and female is, 
is all being thrown in a topsy-turvy, upside down. Why? And the answer is because there's a battle against principalities. Powers. Powers. That refers to things that have the ability to make other things move. Powers that are able to direct, to force, to influence. It can be physical power, mental power, power of authority, power of government, power of charisma, power of oratory, power of privilege, power of riches, power of nature and death. Powers, notice again, it's spiritual. Things that are able to influence others. They're all part of this battle. Rulers. Amazing word that's actually used here. He uses the word cosmos that you know refers to universe, created world. And then it adds a word that simply means ruler. It's one word that literally means world ruler or cosmos lord. And it refers especially to the devil himself. Even Ephesians 2 verse 2 that we considered calls him the prince of the power of the air. And there it uses the previous word, power. Exousia. The ark exousia. That is the principal power. That's what it calls the devil. The principal power of this world. Of this cosmos. Amazing description here of Satan himself. But there's more than that, of course. To indicate we're not simply fighting against Satan, but rulers, indicating that many, most of the rulers of this world are under His dominion and power. Consider this morning Christ and His suffering. Christ knew that. Christ knew who stood behind Pontius Pilate. Christ knew who stood behind Caiaphas. He knew who was governing Herod. Herod may have thought he was on the throne. No. Oh no, there was another. There was another. There was a reason why the devil could stand forth in the great temptation of Jesus and promise him all the nations of the world. How could he do that? And the answer is because he's the ruler of this world. The Lord of this world. The prince of the power of the air, as this book has already reminded us. It's a battle, therefore, about what kind of spiritual power governs us, will rule us, will influence us. Powers of darkness, that is powers of wickedness, powers of sin, or powers from Jesus Christ. Virtues. Powers from the devil or from our Lord Jesus Christ. Spiritual powers such as truth and righteousness, the preparation of the Gospel. Are we governed by the power of faith and the salvation in God and His Word? Or whatever other spiritual powers are their opposites. That's the battle. There's the power of righteousness, and then there's a spiritual power against that. There's the power of the truth, and a spiritual power against that. And the battle is all about which one governs you, which one rules you, which one is against you. And you must see, therefore, it's ultimately a battle over about and a battle against God Himself. It's as if Beloved, the whole creation that God made and all the amazing powers that He put in this creation.
from the power of the devil himself to all the other powers, all the other principalities, all the other rulers, and they're all arrayed as they were against God himself. Against God who is eternal spirit. There is the devil, that created spirit. Against the power of God who is power infinite, omnipotent. Even the powers He created are, as it were, turned against Him. That's the battle. And that's what makes so amazing the calling to stand. Stand. means to remain in place and remain where you have been established. Remain where you have been put. That's what that word means. Not to move. And that this is the main calling is evident by the fact that it's repeated throughout. It starts out, be strong in the Lord by the power of His might. But notice, verse 11, that ye may be able to stand. And having done all, to stand. Even the next section, stand therefore. The idea is, hold at all costs. Don't give an inch. Don't retreat. Don't back up. And it's your main calling because there is no option. There is no possibility of retreat. There's no moving back. You see, you must imagine an earthly battle where these all, their soldiers, and the general has placed all these soldiers in pits, in ditches, in bunkers, in tanks, put them all in a specific place. And a raid against that army is a far, far greater army, so it seems. Hordes and hordes. And the general says, stand. Stand in place. Stand where you are. And fight. And don't give an inch. And that implies, of course, that the one great purpose of the devil is to move us out of our place. To push us off our place from which we stand. To make us fall. To make us retreat. To take us from where we were meant to be. Where we were placed. And knock us off that place. And thus, of course, win the battle. That's what's required to win the battle. The whole battle depends on standing or falling. The importance of the calling, therefore, cannot be overestimated. The point is that it has to do with our overthrow, or it has to do with further gains, it has to do with victory or defeat. And now, where we stand, where we are placed, isn't exactly identified as such, but it should be clear when the text begins, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. Strong in the Lord. Again, think of a battle. And say to yourself, where are you strongest? Where are you to conduct the battle? And the, and the answer is where you're placed, where you're put. Because where you're put is where you find the ammunition. Where, you, where you're put is where you find the defensive weaponry and the armor that you require for this battle. So where are we put? In the place of power. And where is that place of power? And the answer is, in the Lord. 
That's why he can say, be strong in the Lord, because that's the place where you stand. Where you stand is in the Lord. Well, what does that mean? And the idea means remain. Remain in the Lord. You could even break that down. Stand in your faith. You ask yourself, why are the elements of the armor and the weapons what they are? And the answer is because this all has to do with where you stand in the Lord. And standing in the Lord is a matter of faith. It's by faith that we are united to our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by faith that we become one body. We are members of His body. So therefore, stand in the church. Remain in the church. That's why the creeds can say what they do. Out of the church, there is no salvation. So stand in the church. You could say stand in the Word of the Lord. Why is that one of the weapons? And why is that part of the armor? And the answer is because again, we stand in the Lord. So you're standing in His Word. It means to stand believing that the Holy Scriptures are true. The Holy Gospel is true and not a lie. It means to stand in the way of the Lord. That is the way of His precepts. The way of His commandments. All those things are implied. Because the place where you stand is in the Lord. And the idea is that if you're out of the Lord, if you leave the Lord, there's no standing possible. Now you see why this is so important and so essential. Why it concerns what the church is and the church's calling. Why did I begin by saying this is related to who we are? The body of Christ, the bride of Christ. And the answer is exactly because of that. This is a matter that concerns God. It concerns our Lord Jesus Christ. It concerns the church. It concerns the eternal truth and righteousness of God for the truth. The blessings of the church. It concerns the homeland and covenant life of the church. It concerns our inheritance. It concerns our spiritual sons and daughters. It concerns our well-being. Not only now, but in the future. All those things. Stand. And notice especially stand in the evil day. The idea of that is, of course, stand in the evil day, in the latter days, in the period of the New Testament. The Apostle looks forward and sees the church stretched out throughout time until our Lord returns. And he says, stand in that day. The day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Especially stand now in that great and evil day in which He returns. When the fury and intensity of that battle reaches its zenith, its maximum, its climax. You have to imagine, you have to imagine a battle where it's hand-to-hand combat. Where it's not artillery firing each other from miles away. Tanks and bullets and bombs going off. But men and women using everything at their disposal with fury and rage to stand. When the enemy is literally grabbing at your throat, trying to stab you in the heart, stand in that evil day. And we might even say this, stand in the own particular evil day in which we live. Stand in the evil day of your own particular life. The day when the temptation seemed to be the greatest and the battle the fiercest. Stand in the day of battle in which your own church or congregation is engaged in. 
And notice too, the standing isn't a matter of just simply being there. Something passive that we do. It's not a matter of simply enduring like a chunk of concrete the ammo that's being fired from a tank at it. That's not the matter of standing. It's not simply either a defensive activity either. And that's brought out when he says, wrestle, wrestle, wrestle. It's not a matter of being like a lighthouse perched upon a rock while the waves beat upon it. No. You have to think of wrestlers. You have to think of two people engaged in that old art of wrestling where the purpose of one is to upend the other and pin him to the mat. So he loses. Notice how even coming up is what's given to the church isn't simply armor, defensive armor, shields, stuff to deflect fiery darts, but weapons. Offensive weapons. This is a battle that's not simply about deflecting and standing that way. But it's about wrestling, hand-to-hand combat, going on the offensive. One cannot stand, of course, without strength. And thus the admonition is, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. The idea of the passage, of course, is that the strength and the power of His might is found in particular means that He gives. If you wanted to know the specifics of this power and this strength, why, you could go to the fact that it's, well, the strength of the shield. And it has to do with the strength of the helmet and the great powers that are attributed to the sword and the hand and all these things much like you would talk about the strength and power of an army. You'd say, what's the strength and the power of the army? And you would say, well, it's in the size of their guns, and the amount of ammunition they have, and the power of their tanks. Well, so also here. And we're going to consider that at a future date, the specifics. But notice here, it's all summarized as strength in the Lord and the power of His might. Now, that's important. Because what it means in the first place is there is no strength and power in you. The strength and power with which we fight and by which we stand. The strength and power by which we wrestle. By which we do not retreat is not our own. In in fact, there's a particular wile of the devil in that regard. To tempt us into using our own powers. To relying upon our own strength, our own ingenuity, and our own wisdom. And in every case where that's happened, the church falls. Members fall. And we have to be aware of that. We have to be aware that one of the great tricks of the devil is to make us despair of God's power. We say to ourselves, what could faith do here? Well, this isn't a matter of faith. This isn't a matter of salvation. So it's not worth fighting about. There's no real power in the Word of God. Why, what we're fighting about here need something different. What you need to do is think about this more. You need to consider it in your own mind. Think about it in earthly terms and wisdom, and there's always that temptation. And that's just a wild of the devil. That's what you're fighting against. The enemy trying to get us out of our bunkers. Get us to put down our armor. To throw down our weapons. And that's foolishness. 
If you ask yourself, what is the strength and power that's in the Lord and what it is, again, we can look more clearly at all the elements of it. But there's one thing. There's one thing that unites them all. There's one thing that is the real power, and it's really the power of God's grace. What is it that makes righteousness and the Word of God the preparation of the Gospel? What is it that makes faith that quenches the fiery darts of the devil and salvation so powerful, so mighty in this battle? And the answer is grace. The whole history of the church, all of Scripture could be written in those terms. The church wins by relying upon and trusting in God's grace. That's why we refer to grace not simply as beauty or unmerited favor, but as power, real, true power. And that's exactly why, again, the victory and the battle is certain. That strength of the Lord, that strength of the Lord that He reveals so clearly in His own coming, in His own death, in His own resurrection, is no match for the strength of Satan and the spiritual powers of darkness. Those graceless, graceless creatures and their powers. No match for them. And He's demonstrated that already. If there's any doubt about this, consider the Word. The Word prophesies of His victory. The Word prophesies of Satan's defeat. Did that already in the beginning in Genesis 3.15. Read the end of Revelation. Read those chapters. What's it about? Oh, the great victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus demonstrated that in His own coming when He comes. And He shows His power over the creation. He shows His power over the devils casting them out. He shows His power over Satan by not falling for His wiles and His temptations. He shows that in His own death, under God's own wrath, and certainly shows it in the resurrection when the grave cannot hold Him. And certainly He's going to show that when He comes again. Show all of His full power against the powers of darkness. And so, beloved, stand. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, O Lord, our God, we thank Thee for Thy Word, Thy encouraging Word, reminding us again of our calling, that our one great calling in all of this life is to stand, and that in every aspect of our life, and everything that we are involved in, this battle is raging, though we cannot see it with our physical eyes. We pray, O Lord, that Thou wilt give us Thy power and Thy strength. Give us the armor and the weaponry that we require to stand faithful as good soldiers of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.